Ladies and gentlemen, it is my pleasure to welcome you for our conference on Post-Elections Mexico, a theme that has students, commentators, and professors attempting to explain both the what happened and how it will take shape in the future. The prelude, followed by the Grand Concerto, is still ringing in the ears of the legions of Mexicanistas in the US, Latin America, and the whole continent. In any case, the basic facts are very clear. With his victory, Manuel Lopez Obrador, AMLO, put an end to the 88-year hold on Mexico's political power by two parties, the PRI and the PAN, with whom it has alternated power ever since. From here on, the story will be better presented by our trio of experts, whom I have no doubt will provide us light on the why and the how up until our present time and future time. Before the speakers reach the podium, I want to recognize the crucial assistance of Sean Kelly, our Director of Public Events, who made it all possible. Our gratitude also to Dr. John Walters, Vice President of Hudson, whom we owe for our continued existence in our beloved institution. And at this point, I call on Ambassador Jorge Guajardo, who was the Ambassador of Mexico to China and a most distinguished and recognized professional to spread his knowledge on today's topic. Jorge. Do you mind if I speak sitting down since we're all mic'd and uh, that way we can make it more of a conversation rather than a... Okay, you have phone. <laughs> okay. I'll stand. So uh, first of all, uh, I'd like to thank Ambassador uh, Darren Bloom for the invitation, the Hudson Institute, uh, for inviting me here today, my co-panelists, uh, and share with you my take uh, on what's happening in Mexico and, of course, what's coming, uh, what I think we should expect in the future. So I've lived in the United States for the past five years uh, since I left China, as Ambassador Darren Bloom pointed out. I, I was serving in China, and I came to the Washington area serving in the private sector, no longer as a diplomat. And I was here uh, for the last part of the Obama administration, the first half of the Trump administration, and of course, the crucial uh, election. Uh, and I see a lot of similarities. Now, not the similarities one reads uh, in the press, but the similarities, but other type of similarities between uh, the Trump uh, victory and the Lopez Obrador victory. I recall uh, in November of 2016, uh, after President Trump was elected, there was a lot of soul searching and a lot of reading into the situation and why they had gotten it wrong, what he had been able to tap, what sentiment he had been able to tap, and how he managed to win. So we heard a lot about uh, economic anxiety. We heard about the flyover country. 
uh, we, we heard about all these uh, Wisconsin, whether Hillary had visited Wisconsin, on and on about all these uh, factors that played and that uh, now President Trump was able to tap as a candidate and that brought him to uh, victory. But the one thing uh, nobody seemed to mention was just how extremely lucky he had been as a candidate. Lucky that he was running uh, in a system in which the Electoral College allows someone to win, uh, or I mean, to lose the popular vote and still win. Lucky in as much as uh, then FBI Director Comey reopened the, the investigation on Hillary Clinton. And lucky in as much as even whether he knew about it or not, apparently uh, intelligence services uh, now agree the Russians were helping him. So there was a factor of luck involved in his getting uh, elected. He was lucky. And I think uh, we see the same things in Mexico now. Evidently, uh, you don't win by 30 points, only by luck. But there is a lot of luck in, in Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador's election in Mexico. And I think, like, uh, as was the case with Trump's victory, in which I always sort of emphasize, let's not overlook the luck factor because that might not be around the next time. I, I think the same applies for Lopez Obrador in Mexico. And the best way to describe this is that exactly one year ago, in July 2017, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador was tied uh, with a potential contender from another party his party was five points uh, below the PAN party. He was a well-known figure. He had been campaigning for 15 years. And most analysts said that he had reached a ceiling, that there was no one in Mexico who didn't know him already. So there was not much room for him to grow. And yet he was tied uh, in, in face-off races, and his party was down. But then he got lucky. He got lucky in as much as his opposition, his main opposition party, which was the PAN, decided to self-destruct. The PAN self-destructed. The PAN sidelined the candidate was, that was tied uh, with López Obrador, uh, eliminated uh, its democratic tradition, started uh, formed a weird uh, coalition with parties from the left uh, that had nothing in common with the PAN. And for all intents and purposes, the PAN sort of self-destructed. And that is a factor to be considered when we think about the 30-point victory that uh, Andres Manuel López Obrador managed to garner. I, I always say it's like you are playing, now that we all saw the World Cup, uh, the Soccer World Cup, I know uh, soccer is not a good uh, allegory in the United States, but nevertheless, I say he was playing an opposing team that didn't have a goalie. So maybe they can win, but if they lose, they will lose by a lot. And I think that's, in essence, what happened uh, to him. So, so you saw how he went from being uh, tied in the polls, and, and I think uh, Jim uh, here will be talking about polls, and I know Carlos knows much more than I do about the phenomenon of López Obrador. So, so I just want to give you uh, an idea of where he was and 
in September of uh, 2017, he was still in a virtual dead heat when you measured the party, uh, which party uh, voters would, were thinking of voting of. And then in September, the PAN announced uh, an alliance or a coalition. And from there, you see a direct correlation with the PAN just going down in the polls. Undecided started going up uh, in the polls. And now we, saw, we see that uh, where they were heading. And evidently, they were heading either staying home or voting for Lopez Obrador. So now we know he, he got a 30% uh, victory, which, which is a huge mandate, without a doubt. The reason I say that it's important to discuss the, the element or the factor of luck is because it doesn't mean it's final. It means that it, that it can be reversed as well. So I go back to the Trump comparison and how there was all this analysis of, of all these factors that nobody had taken into account, uh, the ones I mentioned, the economic anxiety, uh, flyover country, et cetera, and yet, 18 months later or two years later, you see that the Republican ticket is trailing by 10 points uh, versus the Democratic ticket in a national uh, party face-off. And my belief is that the same could very well be happening in Mexico in the near future, that this is not necessarily the end of the party systems. It was simply an anomaly. It was simply an anomaly that if parties manage to correct themselves, there will soon be a, a reverse of preferences in Mexico that will make a governing probably more challenging in terms of the way he builds a societal coalition going forward towards the midterm elections in Mexico in three years, and of course, the uh, election for his successor in six years. So. I, I just want to open with, with this idea that this is not the end of anything, that uh, this is not the be-all, end-all election, that it's just uh, something similar to what the United States experienced. And like the United States, things tend to self-correct uh, in the process. With that, I'll pass it on to my co-panelists. Please. Well, thank you so much, Ambassador Darren Blum and Ambassador Bajardo for the invitation. Thank you so much to all of you for being here. Um, what I would like to talk about a bit is uh, Lopez Obrador, what he represents, and particularly what brand of populism can we assume he's going to bring into government. Um, as you know, well, um, Lopez, Obrador, Lopez Obrador's victory was a landslide. Uh, he's going to be the first president in the history of Mexican democracy to have been elected by an absolute majority of 53% of the vote. His coalition, uh, composed by his own party, Morena, eh, Partido del Trabajo, the Workers' Party, which is a, a, a leftist party, and the Partido Encuentro Social, or the party, Social Encounter Party, a far-right uh, party. He, he cast a very big umbrella in terms of all the people that he brought in will also have absolute majority in Congress, both in the Chamber of Deputies with 63% and in the Senate with 55%. Out of nine uh, state governments in dispute, the Lopez Obrador coalition won five. 
And uh, he also got majorities in 19 out of 27 local congresses in Mexico. So in the first place, it must be said that you know we had this president in 2000 with a historical victory of Vicente Fox. Vicente Fox victory now looks minuscule compared to what Lopez Obrador achieved this time around. Number two, all other opposition forces have been severely weakened. Uh, as Ambassador Guajardo was saying, Lopez Obrador's victory is uh, for the 53% he got is 30% above the second, pla the second place, Ricardo Anaya. Both Anaya and the priest candidate, Jose Antonio Meade, got the lowest level of votes both of their parties, the PAN and the PRI, have got since Mexico is a democracy. In the Chamber of Deputies, six parties are going to you know, distribute amongst themselves around 37% of the seats. The PAN, the second largest uh, party in the Chamber of uh, Deputies, will have around 17%. And the PRI, which in the previous uh, Congress had 41% of the seats will now have only 11%. In the Chamber of Senators, in which also the PAN is the second force, the PAN will have less than half of the senators that Morena, Morena Lopez Obrador's party got. Outside of Morena and PAN, no other party will have more than 15 senators in a chamber of 128. And finally, in the states, Power has been dispersed as it had never before. The PRI will control 12 out of 32 states' governments. Uh, the PAN will control 11. Morena will control 5. The PRD, uh, Lopez Obrador's previous party, will control only 2. Movimiento Ciudadano will control 1. And there's one independent governor in, in uh, Nuevo León. The opposition camp has never been as fragmented as this time around. Um, so what does this all mean? Um, well, on the one hand, I think it's clear that Lopez Obrador represented, was able to represent, you know, uh, for Mexican voters change. Uh, he became the most credible opposition candidate. And, you know, there are a lot of features in terms of his discourse and his leadership that, you know, fit the description of a populist. In the most general sense, populists, all, all brands, different kinds of populists, share three main characteristics. On the one hand, they represent political conflict as a huge antagonism between two blocks. On the one hand, a morally good people that has been left behind that is not being represented, that is not being led to participate in the political process. On the other hand, a corrupt, a morally corrupt or bad elite that has appropriated politics for themselves and that has anti-democratic tendencies that tends to you know, be in cahoots with interests that are not the interests of the people. And in the third place, uh, there's a leadership that represents that general will, so to speak, that has been forgotten. And that in this case, you know, Lopez Obrador represents himself as the embodiment of that general will. Now, afar from this very general description, 
you know, there are a lot of different kinds of populism. Populism, you know, allows for many varieties. There's a, there's a great difference between, you know, the People's Party in the late 19th century in the US or the Narodniki in the late 19th century in Russia to the historical populisms of Vargas, of Perón, or of Cárdenas in the, you know, in the 1930s, 1940s in Latin America, to the neoliberal populisms of uh, Fujimori, of Menem in the 1990s, to, of course, the so-called pink tide in Latin America with Chávez, or with Lula, or with Evo Morales. So what kind of populist uh, you know, can, we th can we think or can we say that López Obrador is going to be? Well, first of all, uh, it must be said that uh, López Obrador is not a Mexican version of Donald Trump. And López Obrador is not Mexico's answer to Donald Trump. He's not me the Mexican version of Donald Trump because out of the three main characteristics that everybody you know, identifies as constitutive of the populism of Donald Trump, which is anti-immigrant, anti-globalization, and anti-establishment, they only share one, which is the anti-establishment sensibility. Lopez Obrador is not anti-immigrant. There is no ethnic, strong ethnic component to the sort of populism that he embraces. And he is not anti-globalization. Uh, he has been critical of the down effects of NAFTA, but he's, he has never, ever said that he wants to do away with NAFTA. Uh, he is, of course, an anti-establishment candidate, just as Trump was, but the establishments in both countries, I think, are very different, and the sort of popular grievance against the establishment, where they're coming from, they're also very different. Another comparison that has been flying around a lot has been uh, Hugo Chavez. And Lopez Obrador is not like Hugo Chavez. Number one, he was never part of the military. He has never attempted an actual coup like Chavez did. Number two, he's not an ideologue. Uh, Chavez had this whole idea of the Bolivarian revolution of 21st century national, uh, socialism. Lopez Obrador does not have anything vaguely alike. And number three, uh, Hugo Chavez was an outsider to the political system. Andres Manuel López Obrador isn't. He has been part of the system since the early 1970s. He was part of the PRI until the late 1990s. He was part of the PRD. He headed the PRD. He governed Mexico City. He founded a new party you know, uh, in 2015. He plays the outsider card very well, but he's not an outsider. Or we should say he's an outsider from within if that makes sense. And I think that provides us with a key to the kind of leadership that López Obrador uh, embodies, which is a very ambiguous populism. On the one hand, he seems to be very pragmatic. Uh, when he governed Mexico City, you can't say that he was a radical by any measure or by any standard. Uh, he was very popular. He increased social spending a lot. But he was also able you know, to manage to work with the private sector and with opposition parties. Um, and after he was governor of Mexico City, when, you know, when, when he left, uh, the, the incumbent won by a landslide. So he, he left his, you know, his successor in a very comfortable position. But on the other hand, sometimes the proposals that Lopez Obrador comes up with seem to be very amateurish or very improvised. Right now, he has proposed, for instance, to cut up to 
of Mexico's bureaucracy with no actual diagnosis, with no cost-benefit analysis, just the number thrown out there. He has also promised to deconcentrate the federal government and to, you know, to distribute ministries all, all around the national territory without a diagnosis, without you know, cost-benefit analysis. This, this seems to be rather disruptive. But at the same time, we don't know if he's going to fulfill this. We don't know if this is an actual objective or an actual method just to put pressure on his team to actually come up with significant austerity policies that he has been you know, promoting since he was a candidate. So in this, in this you know, ju just to finish, this ambiguity that you know, characterizes López Obrador also has to do with, on the one hand, you know, there is a certain consensus that government has not worked in Mexico for a long time. The three main issues, I know you're going to talk about this, so I'm not going to uh, say much about it. The three main issues driving the election were violence, corruption, and you know, the poor performance of the economy. Some people say you know, rampant inequality. Some other people say you know, the stagnation of poverty. You know, there are many different ways of talking about economic performance being um, very disappointing. On these three issues, Lopez Obrador has been pounding since many, many years. Uh, he has been very good at communicating grievance, at communicating that these are Mexico's main problems. But at the same time, the solution he proposes for these problems are very vague, very ambiguous. People voted for the diagnosis, not for the proposals. In a way, people voted for Lopez Obrador not because what he's proposing, but because of what he represents. The, 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 term, you know, the Peña Nieto administration, in many ways, proved Lopez Obrador right. Lopez Obrador has been talking about corruption, about how the strategy you know, to fight violence is wrong, about poverty and inequality, since way before, since 2000. So I guess, in a way, the case of Lopez Obrador is a case you know, where you know, a clock that has stopped working is still right twice a day. And in this electoral cycle, it was Lopez Obrador's moment to be right because of the maladies he has diagnosed, although not necessarily because of the proposal he has to actually uh, fix them. So I, I, will, I will stay there. Just one more thing. Lopez Obrador seems poised to want to build a strong government, to have a strong president again. And in many ways, the history of Mexican democracy has been a history of the deterioration of the national government, of the weakening of the national government vis-a-vis uh, -vis state governors, for instance, vis-a-vis -vis organized crime, and vis-a-vis -vis special interests. So on the one hand, it's very hard to say that, uh, no, no, we don't want a stronger government. I, I think that there, there's a certain consensus that we need to rebuild the government to, act, you know, to provide it with the capabilities that the Mexican government needs to actually fight effectively the, you know, the problems that Mexico has. But on the other hand, this uh, you know, impulse to strengthen the gover government is seen as a danger because Lopez Obrador might actually rebuild the strong presidency that Mexico's transition to democracy was supposed to put an end to. Again, what we find here is this ambiguity or this vagueness that I think is the key feature of the sort of populism that Lopez Obrador represents. Very good.
Hey, thanks. I love going uh, last. I get to critique everybody else and uh, sound like the smartest guy in the room. Uh, I had prepared a presentation, unfortunately, uh, wasn't made it through security and things like that. So it's a little better. I can actually just talk to you. Uh, let me start by saying, uh, Ambassador, I totally disagree. Uh, it was not luck. Uh, AMLO's uh, victory, uh, it, we actually forecasted it in two occasions and wrote, uh, wrote about how he would uh, win the election in uh, January 30th and in March 28th. Two times we wrote in uh, blogs and articles and published those saying that he would win. Why would he win? Uh, and I, I, we wrote this, uh, this line right here, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador's victory in the 2018 Mexican presidential election represents the macro trend sweeping politics in Mexico and across the globe. This was not an anomaly. This was not, uh, and there are some similarities between Trump, uh, the Trump election and, and the uh, election in Mexico, but this was totally different. And uh, so what I'm gonna do is I'm just gonna walk you through three things. The first is I'm gonna talk about the election, then I'm gonna talk about uh, some of the consequences of the election, and then the short-term and long-term effects and impacts. So let me just start by saying, going back to the, the luck and uh, so, Eight out of 10 Mexican citizens viewed uh, disillusionment with the, uh, with, with the current political system, with PRI. Uh, most people felt that they were out of touch with the political elites in the, in the class, especially PRI, and that uh, they were discredited in their eyes. Social media was demanding that, uh, it was forcing citizens to demand change. Uh, and the citizens were looking for a candidate who represented their beliefs, who could, uh, could help them. This was measurable. We measured this uh, you know, prior to the campaign, and we tracked it throughout the campaign, how public perception was, uh, was changing, how it was evolving, and, and we have statistics to back it up. So it wasn't like we, were, we hate polls, too. Polls are inaccurate. They don't reflect uh, public opinion. A very accurate measurement uh, is public sentiment, if you do it right. So what we saw was that 80.7% of the citizens made their, uh, their desire for change known and voting, uh, which is overwhelming, as everyone said. But why did this happen? It happened because people were frustrated. The three, the three critical issues that we saw across Mexico were corruption, security, and economic malaise. It, it was overwhelming. 52% of the people uh, had strong negative views on uh, corruption, 26% um, with security, and then under that, 12% on narco crimes and violence. So we were looking at 80% of public sentiment was focused at these, these key issues. Um, and they were felt like they were not being represented or there was no solutions by the, the current government. Um, and like I said, corruption then and now is the biggest hurdle or impediment to the, the future of Mexico, and I'll explain why in a minute. But what happened in the election? We now have the political will and the popular will. As you said, with his uh, overwhelming majority and now he has the Congress and both houses, he has the ability to create change. But will he be able to do that? That's the critical question. And the, the reason why is those entrenched uh, um, systems of uh, corruption still exists. Those patronage networks 
within PRI and PAN and the political parties still exist. Right now, there's, uh, as we call it, the, the elephants are, are moving around. There's people or uh, business leaders, political leaders, are reforming alliances. This was happening during the campaign that we saw people from PAN and PRI moving to uh, Morena. We saw business leaders having uh, meetings, and we were in, in attendance with these, and they were uh, having meetings already talking about renegotiating how they were going to align under Moreno and support uh, AMLO. Um, so these are the things that are currently happening, and um, so which leads to, in the short term, what's the change? Nothing. You know, we we wrote in a in a in a blog in an article, you know, the day after the CDMX campaign, whoever was elected, the daily lives of individuals, Mexican citizens, CDMX citizens, wouldn't change. It wouldn't change for a while, um, and that's because these systems are so entrenched that you're not going to see immediate change. So the citizens are, are going to see you know, little progress on these key issues in the short term. And as I said, these patronage systems for business and politics are already evolving and changing and kind of aligning under Moreno. So and going to the point you made, uh, and I wrote this down, you know, AMLO, is, he, uh, he's not a socialist or a populist. He's a pragma pragmatist who is a very savvy politician and he is a political insider. So a lot of the rhetoric he used you know, on the campaign trail was basically rhetoric. And if you look at what he did in CDMX and what he's uh, trying to accomplish as president, it, it's not, you know, if anybody in the United States says, oh, well, now we have a socialist in our backyard, we have another Chavez, that's not the case at all. So long term, we don't see this as a populist revolution we should not fear, uh, you know, socialism creeping up in our in our back, you know, in our neighborhood, in our back door, um, and, and some other things. The 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 public will, this momentum that that brought forth this victory, it can be contained for a little while. However, if people don't see action. They don't see solutions. They don't see movement on these issues of corruption, impunity, security, uh, cartel violence, and, and then economic stagnation. You may see uh, in the midterm elections and in the next elections a, a real populist revolution or a socialist uh, revolt um, because Mexican citizens are tired. They... Uh, they, they want change. That's what brought about this landslide victory. But like I said, they will only be contained for so long. And that goes back to another point, which is the huge impact of telecommunications technology, of uh, social media, and the influence it had not only in the election, but also in Mexican society and culture and how it's changing so dramatically. It changes, and it, we saw changes you know, in, in the year that we've covered three elections. We were in the CDMX, we worked for Jose Antonio Mead and Chihuahua, and we worked for the Green Party. And the changes that we saw, the uh, and funny, very funny stories, you know, we had very, we have great access, and we were able to sit in on meetings, and I'll, I'll, I'll close with this. I sat in a meeting with the uh, political director of for CDMX, for PRI, and we were working on the campaign for quite a while for Alejandro Morales, 
and we had ver we had some concerns. We were looking at the uh, at our sentiment analysis. We were looking at the numbers. We were uh, we were doing all types of analysis, which includes Uber polls, which are really cool. You you get an Uber and you ask the Uber guy, who are you going to vote for? You know, and you you go around uh, Mexico City for an entire day, and you have 40 uh, Uber rides, and it is more accurate than polling. And you get great conversations, and you know the insights that we got were unbelievable. But anyway, it goes back to the point. So I'm sitting there with this this guy, and he's running the campaign, and he's he's telling me how he uh, he, he really admires me because I was in the military and. I'm a strategist, and I've done information operations campaigns, and, and that he fancies himself as a similar type of a dude. And I was like, OK, cool. Uh, and then he's like, uh, we've got this. And I said, well, listen, look at, here's the numbers. Here's what's happening. Here's what our recommendations are. Here's her campaign theme. She's calling herself the jefe, la jefe, the boss of the bosses, which has 80% negative connotations with most male CDMX citizens. You know, we have all these things going on. And he's like, we've got it. And I'm like, listen, I know how you guys work. You know, I know that you form coalitions to, to uh, consolidate the voter base. I know that you got, you're buying votes. I know all of the little tricks that you're doing. You're not going to win. We've got it. I've got a million votes. I said, OK, I'm just telling you, uh, as you know, the person who's here to give you sage advice, you're not going to win. Oh, we got this. I have a million votes. We have a revolution. We have all the workers on our side. We have all these things. They lost. We experienced the same things with Jose Antonio Meade, with Jose Baez Teresa in Chihuahua. This is not, this is. You know, this is a trend that's happening. So I go back to, and I'll close with what I said. The victory by Oberdor uh, represents the macro trends that are sweeping politics in Mexico and across the globe. And this is not my opinion. This is fact. This is data analytics to back it up. These are things that are happening. Uh, if you look at what's happening in Nicaragua today, if you look at what's happening you know, we wrote an article and we looked across uh, the globe and we saw that in the past three years, there have been more political and business elites removed from office than in the past 30 years combined. This is not an anomaly. These things are happening, but political campaigns are not keeping up. Uh, governments are not keeping up. And it's all because there's a disconnect between political will and popular will. And going back to uh, looking at those critical elements of why he was elected, corruption, nepotism, uh, all of the things that haunt not only Mexico, but other uh, Latin American countries and countries uh, you know, across the globe. So I'll end with that and love to uh, field any questions or if uh, any of the panelists want to challenge me, I'm ready. Um. Yeah, we're going to have QA at the end of the panel discussion. But now I have to ask the members of the panel if they have questions for the colleagues in the panel. Okay, go ahead. First, just a, going back, so you said you, you wrote an article on January and March, I assume, of this year, 2018, right? Uh, Yes. 
Yeah, no, the the trend and luck I was referring to was precisely uh, before in September, uh, when uh, so in September the far, the PAN formed the coalition. In October they sidelined uh, its most their most popular candidate, leading to the January and March findings that you that you remark and and if you see it polls and 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 of course uh, polls are to be interpreted uh, anyway, but just simple, or most polls back at the time put the PAN uh, four to five points ahead of the of Morena. And one of the PAN uh, candidates then, Margarita Zavala, on a, in a dead heat with Lopez Obrador. In some, she was uh, ahead. In others, he was ahead. Uh, the thinking back then was that Lopez Obrador had been campaigning for 15 years, something to the effect of 93% of the population knew about him, and we assumed he had hit a ceiling, that, or in essence, that there was a little people were finding out knew about him, so that the readings back then uh, would stay consistent. I think what changed, and, and what I refer to as luck, is how one of the parties, one of the or the main party back then, just pretty much chose to take itself out of uh, consideration by just uh, self-destructing. And then, I mean, there are many reasons for that. I mean, I, I'm just simplifying here, but I mean, there there was a leadership uh, who wanted to the candidacy for himself and so on and so forth. But but I think that was a big factor. And, and the reason I say that was a big factor is, or or the reason I bring light to it, is because I think that when you consider luck as a factor, you should also consider then that next time around, that luck might not be present. So as Carlos was saying, a, a broken watch is a right twice a day. And next time around may not be a, one of those times. And this is an important point to talk about because in Mexico, a, people don't know what to read into this situation. I mean. There are people who are concerned that uh, Lopez Obrador will remain in power past uh, his six-year terms. Uh, that's something that hasn't happened in Mexico since uh, the 1917 revolution. Uh, there are people who are concerned that his party will just become the old PRI and rule in an authoritarian way or in a big umbrella way in which they co-opt every sector of society into their umbrella and therefore sideline any other opposition party. I don't have the answer to whether that will be the case or not, but that's why I point out the fact that this was a very specific situation in which one party pretty much uh, decided to forfeit before the election and that there's room. And, and another party, which is a prior ride that I posit, had no room uh, to maneuver because they arrived at the election so discredited that because of the corruption of the current president, many of their governors, uh, that they were just simply not an option. So, so I think uh, Lopez Obrador was just extremely lucky to uh, to reach election day uh, with these opponents. Um, well, there are a couple of things I would like to add. Number one, uh, you know, this is the third time that Lopez Obrador has run for the presidency. So a question that, that you know, we must grapple with is uh, what happened this time around that he won when he had lost in two previous occasions? 
I think that on the one hand, it, it is you know, the conditions created by the Peña Nieto government, corruption scandals every week, going up even to the president himself and his wife, who had a house built for herself by a government contractor. You know, this was a huge scandal. It's almost like a Mexican version of Watergate, but in which instead of forcing the president to resign, ended up with the firing of the journalists who conducted the investigation. Um, and like that, there were, I mean, the, the scandal, of course, you all know of this, of the 43 students of Ayotzinapa. And like those, there were many, many corruption scandals. Uh, investigative journalism, I think, played an important role in the demise of Peña Nieto. We really don't know if this has been the most corrupt government in, you know, in me Mexican modern history. That's very hard to measure. But we have certainly measured that corruption has become an issue like never before. So the role of journalists in, in, you know, in the discredit and the unpopularity of Peña Nieto's role, I think, needs to be factored in. Uh, and also, that, that's regarding the, the conditions of possibility for uh, Lopez Obrador's wins. But also, I think Lopez Obrador, there was a learning process. He campaigned differently than before. You know, before he used to be the angry candidate. You know, he was very belligerent, very litigious. You know, he in, in 2006, I remember he even started calling names to the sitting president. And this time around, he assumed a more conciliatory, a more moderate tone, uh, which you know it's. Ironic because I think that the predominant feeling of the Mexican public this time around was anger. But angry voters not necessarily vote for angry candidates. And Lopez Obrador was able to capture, I think, was able to recognize that paradox in which you know, he needed to portray himself as somebody who would head a reconciliation process. He has openly talked about this, a pacification, a transitional justice process. He has even called for some sort of amnesty for low level of, or poor people who end up being sucked by organized crime. So you know, in contrast with the radical candidate that he was particularly in 2006, but also in 2012, not this time around, he was not necessarily a radical left, but rather something that I know sounds very, very strange and, you know, in many ways represents some sort of intellectual short circuit, which was he, he became the candidate of a conservative left. He's still a man of the left. He's very worried about what all-time uh, leftists called, you know, the social question. He wants to increase spending in uh, you know, social policy. He wants to fight poverty. He is, in a, for instance, in terms of violence, instead of you know, using, you know, strengthening the Mexican army or the Marines or the police, he's talking about an alternative you know, focus to fight violence, which you know, implies attacking violence you know, in its social roots. He has met, this is a, a typically leftist expression, the social roots of crime. So he is a leftist, but on the, on the other hand, you know, he wants to raise uh, you know, spending without raising taxes. Um, he wants redistribution of wealth without affecting property rights. He wants to fight violence not through guns, but through policy. So this, be, you know, 
this change that happened in the figure of Lopez Obrador, in his tone, even in his image, you know, this was the first campaign that we actually heard the sound of his laughter. This might seem incredibly superficial, but I, I, I think it goes a long way. We heard him make jokes about the things that his rivals were saying about him. So, you know, he became from the bitter and radical candidate who was angry to the guy who can actually, you know, we have to fear no more. The situation had become so bad during the Peña Nieto administration that for the first time in three elections, Lopez Obrador was not the candidate to fear, but actually the candidate who, you know, towards which anger gravitated in favor of. So uh, that was one thing. And the other thing I wanted to say was about the opposition. I think that one of the greatest problems that Mexican democracy has had since 2000 has been you know, the prevalence of a non-productive opposition. In the administration of Vicente Fox between 2000 and 2006, even though the PRI lost the presidency, the PRI kept the majority in both houses of Congress and in most state governments. And the PRI used that power to actually sort of blackmail Fox, you know, uh, and to exchange legislative votes and the governability of the territory, you know, for strengthening politically and financially state governors. It is no coincidence that actually Peña Nieto, before being president, was the governor of one of the strongest states, which is the state of Mexico. So uh, there was a great disenchantment with the Fox government because it was supposed to be the government for change. And it ended up being a government of stability. You know, uh, Vicente Fox has openly said that when he was you know, put to, to choose between transformation and stability, he chose stability. Then from 2006 to 2012 with the Calderon government, uh, after the 2006 uh, you know, controversy about the electoral results, Calderon had to face a very intransigent opposition. There was no dialogue. Lopez Obrador uh, didn't recognize his defeat, and there was no interlocution between the left and Calderón. So that empowered the PRI that was actually electorally very diminished, but since you know, the left ha had nothing to do, didn't want to do nothing with the government, then the PRI started uh, you know, doing the same thing that they did with Fox, which was you know, uh, condition their support you know, for strengthening local governments. And then in the administration between 2012 and 2018, what happened was that Peña Nieto had no real opposition. On the one hand, López Obrador left the PRD and spent most of the, of the, of the term you know, trying to build this new party. So he didn't really oppose. He was you know, busy creating a new party. And the other two opposition parties, the PAN, the center-right, and the PRD, the center-left, you know, entered into an agreement with the president and the PRI called the Pacto por México, which was, you know, a, a legislative coalition to push forward, you know, a very ambitious but also very questioned, uh, you know, structural reform agenda. So, you know, by the end, you know, the, one of the reasons that explains the fiasco of Peña Nieto's government was the lack of an effective and productive opposition. It is a great irony of history that after 18 years of unproductive opposition, the Mexican people finally said, you know what? To hell with opposition, let's produce, for the first time in the history of Mexican democracy, a majority government. But this might actually be you know, the opposite of a blessing in disguise. 
because previous presidents, particularly the Pan presidents, always had the resource of blaming the opposition for not allowing them to govern. And Lopez Obrador, you know, is not going to have that resource because he's going to be, you know, made fully responsible for whatever happens. You want to comment? I'll just wrap it up for the for the this before the Q and A, based upon uh, everybody's inputs. Okay. I would agree that there were many variables that uh, were behind the victory of AMLO. It was a confluence of events. Uh, did each party represent or put forward the best candidate? I say no. When, when we say the best candidate, the most qualified candidate or the most popular candidate, both pre and uh, in the coalition pan PRD, their candidates weren't that well liked. Um, I mean, Anaya was you know, not the choice within the party, but it was uh, put there for his own reasons. Need same thing. There were other people who were much more popular and uh, qualified. So anyway, there was one silver bullet of, of why the election turned out the way it happened. Well, two. One is that uh, Oberdor ran a very sophisticated political campaign. Uh, I mean, I remember you know being on the other side, going, "Damn, I wish their guys would do what the, he's doing." Uh, he never attacked the other candidates. He uh, capitalized on the other, on the mistakes that the other campaigns were making, and you could see, like, even his in his uh, interactions, like him. I remember one, you know, when he was eating the bowl of soup, and uh, a little meme, eating my favorite bowl of soup at my favorite restaurant in X. He connected with the people in a way that uh, no other candidate did or could, and that was the the uh, you know kind of that along with all of this negative hate and anger over those issues, that's why he was elected. So where we go from here, we don't know. Uh, it's speculation. But I will say that the, the greatest obstacle that uh, Obrador faces and Mexico faces is eliminating corruption. Because if you understand and know the impacts of corruption and how it impacts all of the other things like security and education and infrastructure development and economic development. Uh, that is the single most uh, uh, destructive issue that he needs to uh, address and tackle. And with that, I'll, I'll end. Okay. We have a few minutes for questions from the distinguished public. Embajador uh, Caceres. There, there's a microphone. Thank you. Um, well, you don't know exactly what is going to happen. <laughs> but we would like to know what is your, your impression about what is going to happen, whether you would like to, uh, to make a bet uh, on how he is going to deliver. I mean, uh, your assumption is that he's not going to destroy the system. He is not planning to destroy the system. He is not planning to uh, destroy democracy. But at the same time, I mean, you uh, assume that he's he's become a pragmatist. He is no longer the radical leftist that he used to be, uh, and uh, he is an insider. And that's a good uh, that's an, a good uh, description of because after all, he's been there for practically all his life. But were you to be asked uh, on your uh, thoughts, uh, your uh, thinking, 
your wishful thinkings on how he's going to deliver, what would you say? How would you respond to that? And related to something you said about the anomaly, I mean, this is not an anomaly. This is, uh, I mean, you pointed out that uh, for the last three years or more, uh, quite a number of uh, established regimes have been changed. Do you think that uh, democracy as we've come to know is uh, about to disappear in Mexico and some other places because of populists like, uh, like López Obrador, like Trump, like uh, some others? Uh, do you think it, uh, uh, and that would be the last uh, remark, do you think it, uh, he is not going to be a new Chavez or a new Maduro or a new Castro, that he is going to be something more palatable in a way? Thank you. Uh, who wants to take this question? Carlos? I'll take it. Um, I would say that López Obrador is going to be a double disappointment. On the one hand, I think he's going to disappoint his harsher critics because he's not going to be as bad as they assume he's going to be. I don't think he's going to be a Donald Trump. I don't think he's going to be a Hugo Chavez. I mean, it's, it's interesting to think like the power of this character that can summon in the minds of his adversaries somebody who can be at the same time Donald Trump and Hugo Chavez. I mean, right? Uh, so I don't think he's going to be that terrible. But he's also, I think, going to disappoint his most fervent uh, sympathizers. Because there's no way in hell he can, do, he can you know, deliver on all the changes he has uh, promised. Uh, mistakes are going to be made, a lot of them. And the, the harder he pushes for change, the more conflict uh, you know, there is going to be. He has been very careful. You know, since it was clear that he was going to win, and during this, you know, almost month-long transition process, to send the right signals, for instance, to the so-called markets, you know, to say, no, you know, macro we're going to respect the autonomy of the central bank. You know, macroeconomic policy is going to continue the same. We're not going to raise taxes. So he has sent, because he's aware of where, you know, the, the fears against uh, you know, uh, him are, are uh, located, particularly you know, in, in economic terms. But at the same time, you know, he has to also send a signal to, the, you know, to his constituencies that he's serious about change. So he has been very ambiguous. I mean, but he, he, he performs as a fish in water in terms of you know, knowing how to be vague. In foreign relations, for instance, on the one hand, he has told the Canadians, you know, and the Canadians have acknowledged, oh, he's much more progressive than Peña Nieto is. So, you know, we'll, you know, we'll understand, we'll reach an understanding with him perfectly. But on the other hand, he has told Donald Trump, uh, I'm also an anti-establishment candidate, so we can reach an understanding as well. So he's in a phase now. Mexico has an inordinately long transition process uh, of almost five months. So right now, he, you know, he's in a comfortable position to say whatever he wants, you know, with no significant consequences. This is just public opinion, you know, the news cycle. Uh, and he has a long time to plan you know, and to identify very clearly what the priorities of his government are going to be. I think there is a lot of uncertainty. And in a way, that's good, because just his victory and the size of his victory does represent a novelty. Now, in terms of his implementation capacity, 
I would have a lot of doubts. But not, not only because of him, but anybody who reaches power in Mexico, you know, will very quickly learn that the president is not as powerful as you know we tend to think. That sometimes you know change goes beyond who occupies you know the chair of the executive power, and many of the changes that he has promised will take a very long time. So what he needs to find out is the way to buy time for those changes, you know, to start delivering its fruits. But on the other hand, not to lose the credibility that he's actually pushing for change. Can I just address the uh, question about democracy? Um, is democracy under threat? No. It, what we're seeing is an evolution of democracy due to telecommunications technologies and social media and the influence of uh, individuals. It's more of a redistribution of power where uh, now individuals have a voice, a virtual bullhorn that they can use via social media to create change and uh, effect change. So is Mexico under the threat of you know, moving away from a, dem a democratic society? No, not, 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 not no whatsoever. Um, and I, what you were saying regarding, uh, I totally agree with. His party platform is going to fix everything. And uh, a funny story. I was working with the director of the Defense Intelligence Agency before he took over, and he said, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. You know, he had great ideas and vision and passion, kind of like Oberdor. And I said, sir, you're going to fail. And he's like, what do you mean? Uh, you're on my staff. You're supposed to be backing me up. And I'm like, you're going to fail. When you try to do too many things at one time, you're going to get nothing done. So you know, my recommendation to uh, AMLO uh, and to Mexico is take one issue corruption. Fight that issue, and everything else will, you'll have a cascading effect, um, and it'll impact security, education, infrastructure development. And there is a solution. When people say, and we talked about this in the green room behind this, people talk about corruption. Corruption, everybody, all of you, raise your hand if you've never done something wrong, you're not corrupt. Nobody. Yeah, okay, right, sure. We're all saints. Yeah. <laughs> By human nature, all of us are corrupt. Everybody's got a price. <clears throat> and the systems that are in place within Mexico, they promulgate corruption and this. So you cannot leave human beings to fix a problem that they, uh, by their nature, can't solve. But there are technical measures that can be used to fight corruption. They're very effective. You just implement blockchain across the government. Now you have to have, you have to have, uh, you'll be able to see every transaction that's being done. I worked on the political campaigns. We got paid in cash. You know, they came to our, uh, you know, hotel rooms and they, here's a bag of cash. I'm like, yo, dude, you know, can't we just have a contract? And no, because nothing in Mexico is done on the up and up, and everybody's getting 10% or 20%. No, no, I, I. I... Let no. me just. Let's well, not say everybody. Let, There's a couple of people who aren't. I mean, evidently there are cases of corruption. I wouldn't just say the country is altogether uh, just one bag of corruption in which everything, everyone is on the take. Uh, let, let's. No, it's not. Yeah, that's a mischaracterization. A mischaracterization. But I will say that permeates all levels of government, and all levels of society. I mean, when the when the cop on the corner is shaking down the the lady for you know uh, twenty pesos, that's corruption. All right. When you go to the DMV to get your driver's license and you want to bump up ahead of line, then you pay 50 pesos. It's corruption. It's it, 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 and you know, 
do we look at it as corruption or do we look at it as part of the system? And we did, a, we did an analysis in the Dominican Republic where the Odebrecht scandal, you know, the millions of dollars paying for political uh, you know, positions. And we saw how people looked at corruption and how it changed, how it was once looked at as part of the system, as part of the culture. And then it was looked at as an attack on their personal dignity. And these are the, some of those things that we're seeing happen in Mexico. So uh, you, know, you have to look at it, and going back to it, take one thing, fight corruption, and, and make that your, you know, the, the thing that you champion. Just, okay. One, one final comment I, I would make is I'm not sure I would make much of a trend in this sense. Uh, you asked if this was a trend. I think it, when it comes to politics, the, the pool, the sample pool is so big that you can make trends out of everything. You can make trends of uh, billionaires being elected to office if you pull together Chile, Italy, US, uh, Paraguay, Panama. You can make pull of women getting elected to office. You can make pull of uh, soccer stars being elected. It depends uh, on which countries you pull together. I see no particular, or I don't see Mexico's election as part of a trend in and of itself. It was a trend within Mexico. It was a trend of a candidate who had been in office, I'm sorry, uh, campaigning for 15 years, who was, who finally saw his time coming. But I don't think uh, this was part of a trend. And I would consider it more of a trend if, if somebody had come out of nowhere, uh, say in the last two years or in the last year, and all of a sudden rode a wave that was a new trend into office. That was not the case with Lopez Obrador, so that's why I don't, I don't, I don't think Mexico fits into a particular trend. Um, yes, sir. Is there is there any hope um, that uh, Mexico or the rest of Latin America could um, solve its problems in the near future? And and um, what I'm what I mean is that, for example, Mexico since the 1980s have been attaining a slow rate of economic growth. A nation is what it is because of its rate of economic growth. And uh, China has become immensely powerful on every aspect because this year it will be 40 years of growing at about almost 10 percent annually. And Latin America has not done that uh, since the 80s. It is average about two, three percent, depending on which country we're talking about. So the question is, is there any hope for Latin America and for numerous other regions, considering that existing economic policies from the left and the right cannot guarantee fast economic growth? Uh, um, that happens also in the U.S. Mr. Trump is a reaction is um, to slow economic growth from the Obama administration and slow economic growth from the Bush administration. So. What can we look forward, um, whether Latin America, whether the U.S., whether uh, Europe, which is has been stagnating for the last 20 years, uh, with existing economic policies which do not offer anything worthwhile to guarantee fast and sustained economic growth? Is that all? Carlos. Oh. <laughs> um, well, that is a big question. Um, you know, historians who have studied uh, econ the economic history of Latin America talk about path dependence. And that is, you know, there's a, a larger cycle that is very hard to break. Uh, 
I, there are two things that you know make me uh, cautiously hopeful about Lopez Obrador. One is the fact that you know uh, he has identified uh, one of the key problems in terms of producing uh, not only growth but pro-poor growth in Mexico, which is informality. Uh, more than 50% of Mexicans who are part of the you know, economically active population you know, are in the informal market. The informal market has you know, many characteristics, one of which is you know, its very low uh, productiveness. Is that, is that even a word? Productivity. Productivity, yes, sorry. It's very, very low productivity. And you know, his, the person who is poised to become his economic secretary has openly said that you know, they are coming up with a plan to decrease informality, to actually incorporate larger se sectors of the population into the formal economy. This is going to take a lot of time. It is not easy. You know, a lot of in an incentive structure, a functional incentive structure needs to be created. But I like the fact that they have identified at least this problem. And the other one is salaries. Right now, um, you know, they're, they're in the renegotiation of NAFTA, one of the key issues has been, you know, that Mexico's salaries are very low. But you know, the whole insertion of Mexico in the you know, North American market was based on the premise that Mexico was very competitive globally because of cheap labor. And you know, in the 1990s, this was celebrated, you know, as a genius stroke, you know realizing that Mexico could offer this to the world. But it has you know, become evident that even though NAFTA has, you know, has delivered some fruits to some sectors of the economy and to some regions of Mexico, there are other regions and other sectors that have been left behind. And that the insertion of Mexico in a global market through cheap labor is not producing uh, you know, enough well-being for Mexicans. So for the first time around, and, and in, you know, not necessarily in agreement with, the, with most of the private sector in Mexico, the Mexican president has said that he agrees with some of the issues that have been put forth you know, in the renegotiation of NAFTA, saying that Mexico needs to bring salaries up. This, of course, is a double-edged sword, because you know, investments might not come if labor is not as cheap as it used to be. But at the same time, I mean, there, there might be a process where you know, salaries can come up without actually investments flying over China or other places, particularly because production uh, you know, costs in China have also gone up. So if there are two things that I find you know, that I, I am relatively hopeful about, Lopez Obrador, starting, I mean, not, not delivering change, but starting to create the conditions for a long-term uh, change it's those two, informalities, informality, fighting informality, and uh, improving you know, wages of Mexican workers. Somebody on the right here. Javier, ¿tienes alguna pregunta más? Yes, sir. Uh, please name an affiliation. Okay, my name is uh, Lars Madsen. I'm uh, working in the World Bank, but I'm probably mainly here because I was working as a diplomat for three years in, in Mexico. Oh. Um, my question goes to, now we've been talking a lot about corruption, and uh, it was really the big issue, as I also heard it, for 
for of course for for AMLO in this whole process and and combating corruption. Yes, indeed, it is at the at the core of the matter and should hopefully then also trigger down to providing more wealth for 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 everyone in in the society. And that way, just as a as a brief comment, I think maybe what happened during the president or the 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 election, as I saw it at least, was that. Maybe he was the first to diagnose it and talk about it, but it ended up being everybody talking about those issues. So probably I would say he was not elected because of the diagnosis, because they ended up all having that diagnosis. But at the end of the day, what I heard, at least from my context, was a lot, we've tried the others. It just didn't work. Let's give this guy a try. And that's where probably this element that he became a little more suave, a little more rounded, became relevant, that suddenly you could give him a try. So what bar does he have to reach to become not a disappointment at the next election is, of course, a little interesting because, honestly, if he just does some small changes compared to what has been going on for the last 80 18 years, you can decide what calendar you use. Uh, it might even be enough, I would think, for people not to be sufficiently disappointed to elect someone else. Because at the end of the day, this was not only about high hopes for Lopez Obrador, but was about absolutely no confidence in the rest. In 2000, there was a certain confidence in that maybe Ban could come and do something else. Pri even got re-elected by being the new PRI, which was something where you say, well, it's not the old. And that was basically also because they wanted to reject the notion of corruption, to say, we're the new PRI, we're not the old ones, because those you knew were corrupt. So just to say, uh, as I see it at least there, there are, there are a lot of levels in terms of what expectation do we really have in, in, uh, in uh, AMLO. Uh, but my question would be as the last one, because AMLO has a tradition also of having been in government in, in, in the city, and he was well-liked. Yes, it didn't go all down the drain, but we also know that there, were, there was also corruption within that system. So what is your assessment of the current setup that he has? Does he, and, and there I'm also talking a lot about the people around him, no? Because at the end of the day, he can't do it all alone. And he invited a lot of Pan people in, a lot of pre people in, um, he, um, well, there, you can mention a certain amount of names around him, very close aides, where I at least believe that his, their list of, of, of acts being involved in corruption can also be fairly long. So how do you assess his chances with the current also setup? I mean, the people that he rely on. What, is, what are his chances of really delivering on corruption? That's, that is a big, 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 big question. Uh, if I was a weather forecaster, I'd say fair to partly cloudy. But I don't know, that is the one issue. And, I, and if nothing else, he does understand that that is the issue. He does understand very well uh, that that is the issue he will be measured on. So uh, that's a beginning, I would say. But Go ahead. Depends how serious he is uh, to fight corruption. Uh, 
a lot of what we experienced in the political campaigns, some of the candidates would not even address the issue because they were tied to it. Um, if you come into a system that is, you know, is, has endemic corruption throughout, where do you start? I mean, like I said, it depends on how serious he is about the issue. There are, uh, there are ways to combat corruption, very effective ways. It's how serious you're, you're going to do it, how you hold people accountable. Um, you know, a lot of, during the campaign, they were talking about prosecuting the, you know, the president. They were talking about uh, amnesty. They were talking about all of these things. They just uh, appointed the, uh, I guess he's going to be their, their uh, czar for security. And we reached out to him uh, this week uh, to, to help the Mexican government. So there's plans that are in motion. I just don't know how effective they will be. And it's all predicated upon how serious he is about fighting corruption. Just to add something there, I find very interesting the fact that on the one hand, Lopez Obrador became the most credible candidate when he spoke about fighting corruption. One of the reasons of that is that he himself personally has never been able to, to be pinned down you know, on personal enrichment. People around him have, but he hasn't. Uh, so that created this sort of aura of respectability. You know, even if people around him are corrupt, he has never been tainted by a corruption scandal. Uh, and I think that provided a huge edge in the, in the election. Now, when you hear him speak about what his policy is to fight corruption, uh, it's incredibly naive. I mean, it, there is this, you know, vague and naive. So, I mean, it's trickle-down honesty in a way, you know? Uh, he says, if the president is honest, not corrupt, this honesty is somehow going to irradiate, you know, from the office of the president down and, you know, to the governments. Uh, I mean, I don't want to downplay the importance of having a decent person in office. I think it sends a signal. I think the fact that the previous president was involved personally in a corruption scandal sent a signal, and that it was not punished. Quite to the contrary, it remained impugned. Sent a signal that, that, that corruption was OK. Um, and that was, you know, that was very disruptive. So I, I think that you know, the president being honest and being somebody who hasn't been tainted is important. But you can't fight corruption that way. And Lopez Obrador lacks an institutional reform and a public policy vision to actually make this last. Because if your corruption policy is based upon the premise that you need you know, the top to be honest and that somehow that is going to trickle down, well, the moment that president leaves, then all falls apart. I hope that there is a, a quick learning process that you know, honesty is important. But there needs to be you know, institutional and public policies, institutional reforms and public policies to actually make this new wave of honesty, so to speak, you know, last beyond you know, the aura of López Obrador in office. One last question, the gentleman here. Yeah, Dan Lieberman. Yeah, you talked about corruption, but uh, corruption has always uh, been endemic in Mexico. The new element here seems to be the crime connected to the corruption, uh, like the disappearance and murder of these 28 students. I don't think there's any country in the Western world 
if the crime was as, the amount that is in Mexico, the government would not be overthrown. I mean, if we had this type of crime in the United States, the government would be overthrown automatically. So we haven't really focused on the crime element. Hasn't that played really a central part in displacing the government and electing Obrador? Yes, the answer is yes. That was a big issue in the campaign. Uh, unfortunately, with both corruption and crime, they both tend to be much of at the state level more than at the federal level. So even though that's something you expect the president and demand the president address, I'm not sure he has as much tools as he thinks he will have to address these issues. Uh, crime in Mexico, especially homicide, uh, which is uh, what, we, what most worries us and what we read in the news, is, is a crime that's persecuted at the state level uh, by the governors and their attorney generals. Many of them uh, now belong to Lopez Obrador's party, others don't. Uh, you try to coordinate them, they don't necessarily go along. Uh, it's like herding cats. And, and it has been a problem. That's, that has been one of the main problems uh, in Mexico. So, so it is important that the president addresses it head on, but I'm not sure it's the final solution is within his reach. But I totally agree. <laughs> uh, it, it is a local issue. Just like all politics is local, you know, I have to say all crime is local, and that you can implement some policies like Margarita Zavala. She went against her husband, you know, and his ideas on you know forming you know on how to address it. But it really is empowering the uh, the local uh, governments to to address it because they're the ones who have the institutional knowledge because they're fighting the battles every day. And then if you're trying to implement broad policies at the national level they're not going to have the uh, impact that they will at the state level. So you know, it, it really is like a kind of a catch-22. You can talk about it, but there's not really a lot you can do. You have to empower those uh, state legislators and, and the officials uh, to, to address crime and corruption. But it goes back to there is a connection between corruption and, uh, and, and violence. And you know, it's these corrupt... You know, what was the anecdotal story? Beza said, well, I could, he couldn't go out because he was afraid that the, uh, it was one of the politicians. They couldn't go out because they were afraid that there was a mark on them because they were going to talk badly about the local cartels. They have the power. You know, so what do you do at the national level? I mean, you, you can't fight that. You have to uh, fight it at the, at the regional uh, and local levels. Well, I'm sure there are many more questions that come to, to the mind in a topic so caring as the one we have been discussing this afternoon. I want uh, to thank you for having joined us today. And uh, I would like to ask a big and resounding round of applause for our fantastic panel.